Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. The phrase hindsight is 2020 implies that if we could think with perfect clarity, we'd be able to avoid mistakes. But the phrase is actually imperfect. It's derived from the Snellen eye chart, that triangle of big and small letters that you rattle off at your ophthalmologist's office once a year. The test doesn't measure perfect vision. It measures what you see compared to what the average person sees when they too are 20 feet away from the same triangle of letters. So even if our hindsight is 2020, our vision isn't always clear. When it comes to governments, we remember the success stories. That's one small step for man. Or the epic failures. Nixon was the guy who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. But seldom do we remember all of the decisions, the nitty-gritty details, the incremental policy changes, or the momentum that propelled leaders to those outcomes. We tend to divide up presidencies. The accomplishments of the first 100 days the twilight months of an outgoing administration, the final throes of a lame duck president. And inevitably, as the baton is passed from one administration to the next, the cycle begins again. The optimism, the promise of change, the potential inherent in a political reset. Because despite what we see in real time, our memory, for good or bad, is slippery. It allows us to believe that Whatever the previous outcomes, there is opportunity for renewal, for progress, for a fresh start. I ran for president because I am determined to see good governance in Liberia in my lifetime. When she came into office, every single Liberian was a war survivor. Everybody walking down the street had a horrible story to tell. It's almost hard to fathom today what Ellen Johnson Sirleaf inherited when she became president of Liberia in 2006. The weight of expectation on her shoulder was huge. The country had been at war for 15 years. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was there was basically nothing. The streets were so trash-hooned because the country had been very much a dog-eat-dog world and everybody in the country had been just focused on survival for years. That's Helene Cooper. She's the Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. My family moved to the United States when I was 14, when we fled a military coup in Liberia. And members of my family who had been in the government were targeted. My uncle was executed on the beach by firing squad. Cooper and her family fled in the 1980s, when political and cultural tensions in Liberia came to a head, and the government primarily comprised of descendants of freed American slaves, 
was violently overthrown by the Liberian army, the president killed and his cabinet executed. Years later, Cooper returned to research her book, Madam President, The Extraordinary Journey of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. In the time that Cooper had been away, Liberia had endured a military coup and two brutal civil wars, collapsing the economy and leaving an estimated 200,000 people dead. It was at this moment that the mothers and daughters of Liberia decided that they had had enough. There was this incredible movement among these women as Liberia started to come out of the war in the early 2000s where they were demanding ceasefire. And then these women continued their movement to get Ellen Johnson's relief um, elected president. In 2005, this country of shell-shocked war survivors held free democratic elections, and the women who'd rallied for peace chose one of their own. Rural women, urban women, illiterate women, professional women, poor women, rich women, they all decided, our time has come. <laughs> Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was very much a daughter of Liberia. She grew up in Liberia in the 19, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s and ended up going to school here in the United States. Uh, she went to college. She was in an abusive marriage. She had four children. She eventually left her husband and became sort of what I would call an economics geek. You know, she went to Harvard. She ended up working in and out of government for the World Bank. And then she'd go back to the government, Liberian government. Each Liberian government she worked for found her too mouthy and too quick to tell off her superiors. So Helene, how did this economics geek, as you called her, become the first woman to be elected as an African head of state? It's extraordinary, her story, because... It's so interesting what the Liberian women did. This women's movement was made up of this weird combination of women who were educated, but the vast majority of them were not, but they wanted to see their children educated. And they felt in many ways that a woman like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was the one to bring the country back. You know, they were out in the streets for her. She won on the backs of them. Johnson Sirleaf had run on an ambitious anti-corruption platform, promising reconciliation and recovery. And as with any new administration, once in office, that promise quickly turned to pressure. I have many promises to keep. As I was elected with the massive vote of women, I must assure that their needs are met. Women all over Africa came to her inauguration. They invested in her all of these hopes and expectations, and she used that. I'm Caroline Modoresi-Tirani. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a new limited series podcast produced weekly in partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders, helping them tackle their most important challenges. We're looking at the foundation of democracy, the peaceful transition of power. And this week, we're focusing on the first 100 days, a test which, if passed, can propel a government out of crisis and which shapes the success or the failure of an administration's long-term goals. 
I'm Julia Dahm. I'm a partner at Boston Consulting Group. I lead our global team that focuses on behavioral economics and behavioral insights. So behavioral economics is how people make decisions under conditions of uncertainty and how that might vary from the expectations that rational economists have. Think of it like this. Rational economics applies theories to a perfect set of information. Julia's field of behavioral economics looks instead at the imperfect circumstances by which we actually make decisions. Anyone who's ever made a New Year's resolution or said, you know, when I start this new job, things will be different or expected that you know, when the government changes over in their country, things will change, you're hopeful. And there's something really beautiful about that. But what you're also experiencing is the fresh start effect. The idea that you can turn the page and be better and different in that moment than you were in the previous moment. And for leaders, that's actually an extraordinary opportunity because you know that people are resistant to change, but we also love the idea of a fresh start. There's something really promising about that for all of us. And you can capitalize on that moment, that that's an opportunity that you have to reach people. One of the fascinating things about the American system, I guess, is that we sort of self-impose a time limit as to when the end of that honeymoon period is, right? We say you have the first 100 days. How do you look at the first 100 days? You know, what does it signify and is it useful? Deadlines are always useful, right? They're useful, I think, for the administration themselves. It's attractive for the media, of course. It's a litmus test for the public uh, as well. Uh, if you asked leaders of all political stripes, would they say it's too limiting that big change takes time? Yes, of course. Are they right about that? Yes. But nonetheless, there is something powerful about that idea that we can accomplish quite a lot uh, in a relatively short period of time and use that to generate the momentum that people will need for the, for the you know, months and years ahead. That, that's the dilemma of leadership. That is the challenge for a new administration um, as well, right? So you have to play the board as it is set. You, you don't get the chance to set the board. This is our first test. And so everyone is on edge to make sure that we do this right. That's Danny Werfel. He runs the public sector practice at Boston Consulting Group. He was a civil servant through both the Clinton-Bush transition and the Bush-Obama administrations. So he knows firsthand what it means to play the board that you have. So at the time, I was at the Office of Management and Budget. And so the first few weeks of the Obama-Biden administration was furiously spent formulating and writing the Recovery Act. For even as we celebrate tonight, we know the challenges that tomorrow will bring are the greatest of our lifetime. When Barack Obama took office in 2009 on a message of hope and change, the nation itself was facing the most severe economic crisis since the Great Depression, thanks in large part to the US housing bubble and global financial collapse. I always go back to Maslow's hierarchy, and Maslow's hierarchy says, you know, if you don't have your food, shelter, clothing at the foundation, 
then you don't have the time or the energy to move up the hierarchy to things like happiness and other types of emotion. And so when you walk into a presidency where there's a crisis, an economic crisis, and people are losing their jobs and homelessness is on the rise, President Obama had to go right to that food, shelter, clothing part of the agenda. And keep in mind, this is at the very start of the Obama administration. Like the act was signed into law roughly four weeks after Obama's first inauguration. So we're all in the mindset of, you know, we want to, we want to do well right out of the gate. We want to prove that this administration is, is going to be successful. We want to prove to the president that we can carry out his priorities effectively. And the president wants to prove to the American people that he is going to run government highly effectively. It's the product of broad consultation and the recipient of broad support from business leaders, unions, public interest groups, from the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers, as well as the AFL-CIO, from Democrats and Republicans, mayors, as well as governors. At breakneck speed and less than a month into his presidency, Obama and his team pushed the Recovery Act through Congress, a whopping $787 billion stimulus package. The next challenge was to put it into action. You have the president at times, more often Vice President Biden, who the president put in charge, sitting in the room, going around, talking to each of the key officials from the relevant agencies, and basically saying, you can't fail, so you need to tell me what you need from us in order to be successful. I don't want to learn later that you should have asked for something. Ask now, and we will get you what you need but put it all on the table. What kind of pressure did you feel? There was a sense of exhilaration that that the team that President Obama and Vice President Biden had established were going to empower me and others to, um, to do what we needed to do to be successful, and they were going to trust us. And therefore, it put everyone on notice. That trust didn't just manifest inside the West Wing or at the OMB. For Vice President Biden, that trust had to trickle down to every corner of government. One thing that I felt from the beginning that Vice President Biden and his chief of staff at the time, Ron Klain, keenly understood was the important role that state governments are going to play in the success of this legislation and really demanded of us that we had clarity with our state partners in terms of what our role was in the federal space versus their role was in the state space, and then really emphasized open lines of communication. You know, your phone never rings to the answering machine. Like you pick up when any governor or any state office is calling and you make it as easy as possible for them. So I remember there was one critical moment in the implementation of the Recovery Act and and Vice President Biden and Ron Klain were asking the team, have you covered every base to make sure the states have what they need? And as a result of their pushing, we ended up deploying federal employees to state capitals, Tallahassee, Sacramento, et cetera, to sit there and be an on-site liaison in case the state had an issue. So rather than having to navigate the bureaucracy the liaison was there. And that was an extremely effective approach. 
while the relief package was itself an urgent response to the economic crisis, the ripple effects that it had on a future US economy and its reputation were just as grand. Talking about this stuff, Danny, the Recovery Act had a duality to it because it wasn't just about getting the country back on track. It was also sort of a symbol to the rest of the world about what America was going to be doing in this global crisis. Can you speak a little bit about the the challenge and that duality of both a president communicating to its own people and then also the importance of an administration communicating to an international audience, international governance? We're such a big and important player on the world stage. It sets the tone that the rest of the world is struggling as well. And what was powerful about the Recovery Act was speed matched with thoughtfulness, and then the numbers slowly but surely started to change. For President Obama's political fortunes in the first midterm, they didn't change quick enough. But when you look back at the story of the Obama presidency over the eight years, you see a steady improvement in all of the economic indicators and economic numbers. And I think that started with um, with the Recovery Act. To Danny's point, we tend to count the big changes and miss the small and steady ones at government and individual levels alike. We mistake 2020 eyesight for clarity instead of vision. Do you see the window of opportunity with a new administration has been solely around that first 100 days? Or do you think it's a different metric? Is there a different metric we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think it is important to um, demonstrate the boldness of your vision. The first 100 days is where you're demonstrating to um, to all the people and players in the ecosystem of government, the media, the public, can I handle this job? I mean, just think about it. You know, if if a president stands up in their first State of the Union or their first joint session of Congress and announces a moonshot, it's going to have a bigger impact than if they do it in their last. They have all the runway. And they're prioritizing this moonshot as part of their early message. So it has more impact. And and I think more people will take it seriously. So I do think there's a diminishing impact that a president and an administration can have over time. We are this very moment in the middle of a reset. At present, we're just over a month into President Biden's administration. And like President Obama, Biden's moonshot was preordained problem to solve, a pandemic to end, and a virus to kill. Here's behavioral economist Julia Dart again. The Recovery Act is a different challenge than the you know, vaccination of 100 million or more Americans. It's less, it's less immediately visible, less transparent um, in people's day-to-day lives, which is a, it's a communication challenge for an administration, but also that's a, that represents an opportunity for the Biden administration um, as well. It will be a wonderful thing um, for, for the United States if they are able to successfully deliver um, on that, you know, hopefully in the very near future, uh, not either every American will have been vaccinated or someone close to them who they love very much will have been vaccinated. And those are kind of positive and powerful symbols for people. When Danny thinks about vaccination and the COVID-19 stimulus bill, 
He sees an opportunity for the president to draw from the strategies and experience that were effective when implementing the Recovery Act. What was so important at the time was speed. You know, we had state governments with extraordinary deficits and um, and on the fiscal brink of, of really kind of compromising mission-critical activities. We had industries that were teetering on the edge, um, like the auto industry and others. And so what President Obama and Vice President Biden were able to do was not recklessly, but thoughtfully and in an in a effective way, get money out of federal coffers to state and local governments and to industry in a way that started to you know, stabilize the ship. And I just think about what's been going on with the pandemic with respect to a lot of confusion that's been expressed by governors, by state and local officials about their role versus the federal role when that baton is handed off on things like testing and vaccine distribution. And I think there's a real opportunity to learn from the Recovery Act on how to approach state and local engagement differently. A window of opportunity is actually a beautiful metaphor for this moment, because on the one hand, there is this this grace period, this small set of moments where leaders, in this case, uh, President Biden, has the chance to shape an agenda. Um, but it's not a door, it's a window. They, the people are looking into this this transition and they're also looking for ways to help um and contribute so that the dialogue that discussion actually goes two ways in in this moment right and taking that opportunity that to invite people into a broader conversation is exactly what this this moment that transition period in american political life represents to julia's point Leaders, and in particular presidents, must play the board they've been given. For Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, that meant meeting the immediate needs of her country, which had been devastated by war and conflict, while simultaneously plotting for a better future. Here's journalist Helene Cooper. Liberia's debt was so huge, and that's why I often think that Liberians weren't looking at it that way when they were, you know, electing Ellen Johnson Sirleaf at the time. They, you know, nobody when you're in the middle of a war and you're fighting to find food, food to eat and to feed your children is thinking, oh, I wonder what our debt, you know, our 4.7 billion debt to the IMF and World Bank and the Paris Club is. But in order for Liberia to get all of the money that it needed to start rebuilding and to get to where it could sort of be a country again, you needed to have that debt forgiven. Ultimately, having 2020 hindsight is about perspective. What if we saw every priority, every person, every policy that contributes to governance as part of the bigger picture? A mosaic of choices which, unlike the letters of an eye chart, tends to come into focus the farther away that we get. For even after everything they have endured, the people of Liberia have faith in new beginnings. Just two months after Johnson Sirleaf was inaugurated in March of 2006, she came to the United States to address Congress. They are counting on me and my administration 
to create the conditions that will guarantee the realization of their dreams, we must not betray their trust. She met with President Bush. They treated her like a rock star. She got 33 standing ovations during her speech. She laid it on so thickly to the Congress. And this was a Congress that had just been labeled the do-nothing Congress of by the Wall Street Journal. The reputation of the U.S. Congress at that point was in the toilet. And she is there just gushing to them and telling them about how Liberia's victory coming out of civil war is their victory because they had, you know, demanded that Charles Taylor leave and she laid it on really thick. And the next day got $50 million from uh, Congress for sort of a democracy dividend, they called it. But she was just making sure because what she needed was for the United States to lead the way with the IMF and World Bank in debt forgiveness. The energy that Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was able to harness at the very start of her tenure, when her country was in a crisis, propelled her to make changes that would outlast her two-term presidency. I think the momentum of her being elected was really key to helping her uh, um, achieve these goals, particularly on the international scene. Abroad, she was looked at as, oh my God, this first, the first woman elected president of an African country. That's huge for women everywhere. When she showed up at Davos or when she showed up, you know, in front of Congress, she knew how to take all of those expectations and sort of turn that into, you know, money for Liberia. She knew how to do it and she, she did it. President Johnson Sirleaf seized her window of opportunity by bringing the international community on side, an essential start to a big-picture recovery. As Julia points out, leaders cannot act on energy alone. They need people. Here's Julia Dart again. People spend a lot of time at work. People also spend all their time as citizens. Right? It's uh, participants in a society. So it's important to figure out how we connect them to that. And if we you know, call people to a higher version of themselves, we then need to follow that up pretty quickly with an on-ramp for them to be able to be a participant in whatever that higher version of our country is. Pretty quickly, you need to reach people at the moment that they're excited, that they're ready to make a change and give them practical ways to do it. It feels very much like the JFK line, right? Like, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Right. But the behavioral lens on that is also, we should give people some really clear ways. Don't, don't let people sit around and ask too much. Sometimes what you can do for your country is as simple as wearing a mask or staying home if that's what's needed in the moment. You know, a lot of people have used the analogy that the pandemic has put us on a wartime footing. And during a war, people put away their personal agendas and go and, and volunteer and fight for country. But you need to know where to go and what's expected of you. I think many, many Americans want to be a part of the solution. Government needs to help build that framework and that structure for us to be a part of that solution. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from examining how leaders approach momentum to how they define their moonshots. Okay.
Good try.